Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Charles Michael Beaver, author, information technology engineer, hypnotherapist, alien contactee, and stuntman. Charles has had a lifetime of paranormal experiences, which we will learn about today. Mike, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome. Thank you, Jeff. You like Jeff or Jeffrey? Doesn't matter. Okay, Jeff. uh, Thank you for inviting me on your show. It's, It's a pleasure. All right. So Mike has given me the privilege of just seeing a little bit of his unpublished book. So I'm going to just start asking him and talking about some of his paranormal experiences. So if you don't mind, Mike, um, let's start with this one. You had an alien encounter on the NASA base in Cape Canaveral. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, I have to first go back to on October 3rd, 1980, I had my first close encounter. It lasted like between one and two hours and on a, um, at my mother's house in Northwest Houston. So um, skipping through that event, um, there was a craft I saw that, that day that was dark, like a black hole with eight equidistant lights around the edge of it. And so I was kind of in a mood to leave the planet permanently at that time. I think that's why they came because I was thinking of committing suicide and uh, I, I was ready to leave. And at the last minute I had the opportunity to leave with them. That's what they came for. And then um, I changed my mind at the last minute they left. And then um, after that, I'm thinking, well, I made the mistake and, uh, you know, that I should have gone. And so I was trying to think of when they would come back. And the only thing I could come up with is they might come back to see us uh, launch the first reusable spacecraft, which is the space shuttle, which was, so the first encounter was October 3rd, 1980 at 11 p.m. at the northwest corner of playing, near the northwest corner of Clay and Gessner, Houston. The second one, six months later, was on NASA base. Now, I had the notion that they would show up on that base to see the space shuttle launch, but they didn't. They showed up because I asked them to show up, and that's um, kind of a boastful statement that you could just say, hey, come on down, and they do. Uh, people do it all the time, but uh, it was um, a unique event for me. Anyway, so um, my idea after the first encounter was buy a motorcycle that that was brand new on the market see my father had a uh, uh, a corvette he had he had two corvettes that were pre-production of the first um the first year of the corvette was steel the second year was fiberglass before the fiberglass corvette was built my dad had a copy of it pre-production had two of them and Cops would stop them all the time to give to to get a look at the car, and they give him tickets even when he wasn't speeding, just to see the car. And I thought about that, and I was like, okay, I should just if I want to get on base to see the first special launch and to see the aliens again, if they showed up the second time to see a reusable spacecraft. I had the way to do that was to buy a, a motorcycle that was brand new on the market that nobody ever seen. And I'd have the same effect as my father with that Corvette. So I did, I went out and bought a, a Yamaha Virago 750 and I basically had my car stolen and the insurance money I took and bought the motorcycle, uh, drove it down to, uh, Cocoa beach 
parked it on the beach and I, I figured, well, if I parked it on the beach, somebody would be attracted to it who had a pass to get on base. And that's exactly what happened. I parked it on Cocoa Beach. Um, the guy walked over. He was the father of uh, three kids and he had a, one of his workers with him. His youngest fourth kid was at home with his wife. They didn't come. So he walked over, looked at the motorcycle and said, said to me, how are you going to watch the space shuttle launch? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, I have a pass to go on base. I want you to go with us. And I said, great. And then he introduced me to his kids and he went off to uh, peruse the bars for several, three or four hours while I stay, stay with his kids, a total stranger. And uh, so I hung out on the beach with his kids on Cocoa Beach and spent the night there. And then the next day we um, went to the base and parked. Um, or was it the next day? I don't know. Anyway, um, the day of the, the, not the day of the launch, but the day where it was supposed to launch. It didn't actually launch the first day. We parked uh, or we stopped outside the gate. They were in a, uh, a station wagon with those fake wood panels that station wagons used to have. Mm -hmm. uh, they stopped outside the ga gate. I parked my motorcycle, uh, jumped off it, uh, got in their station wagon and drove on base or rode on base with them. And uh, the father's driving his worker, who was like in his early 20s or maybe even younger than that, could have been 19 to 23 ish, young man, uh, German, I think. Um, not a huge amount of accent, though. Anyway, he um, was riding in the passenger seat in the front. I'm in the second uh, row of seats uh, and on the right, and his. Uh, son and one, one of his sons and his daughter were on my left and his younger son was behind us in the place where you keep your luggage. And so uh, while we're going on base, it's pre-dawn. It's like five in the morning and or five 30 at the latest. And so it's like really dark stars or there's some, I think there was stars out that night, but I'm not sure. It was, I don't remember any moon being out that, that morning. Anyway, um, we, uh, he stopped long enough for me to park my bike outside the gate. I got in the car. We went on base. We're going at, uh, like five, 10 miles an hour, uh, very slow. And it's a long ways from that gate to where the launch was. And, um, we went to the la uh, launch and they, uh, nothing happened. What happened was they went to launch when it got dawn, when it got light, they went to launch it and it got down to like 10 to 15 seconds or it's about 10 seconds short of takeoff uh, or blast off initialization, whatever you want to call it. And uh, it, they, they, they stopped the, the countdown and then an hour or so later they scrubbed the launch. And so we had to um, had to decide whether we were going to – they said this was like on a, a Friday or a Saturday, and uh, I think it was a Friday. And then they, um, they said, well, they we're going to relaunch on Monday or Tuesday. And, uh, and so uh, like three days later. So he said to me um, – you know, I came here to see the launch. I'm not going back home until, you know, without seeing the launch. And he said, well, we could go over to uh, uh, Daytona Beach and uh, hang out. And there'd be a lot of women there and stuff, you know. Anyway, uh, I said, that sounds great to me. I'll follow you. And he took off in his station wagon with his kids and worker. And I followed him on my motorcycle and got lost. Or I didn't get lost, but I lost them. And so I had to go, I figured they'd be on the beach somewhere. So I got to Daytona, got on the beach and rode my motorcycle down the beach looking for them. And I've never seen so many beautiful women in my entire life. Anyway, um, eventually I found them and uh, he let me sleep in his hotel room 
and I, I'd stayed awake for two or three days getting to, uh, to uh, Florida from Texas driving. And so I was like dead tired. So I slept for like the whole time from the time we got to the hotel room till um, we went back on base the second time. I slept most of that time. So anyway, I'll cut past a bunch of stuff because it was a bunch of stuff we did. But anyway, uh, going back to the base, we parked outside the base and I got in their station wagon the second time, went on base and we're driving just like before. And I, the second time I decided to tell them about my first close encounter, which I skipped over, I haven't told you about it. That takes a while to tell. It's like one or two hour encounter. I went through that whole story from start to finish while we're going at five miles an hour and in very dark uh, in this in the darkness, pre-dawn sky. All these cars were like uh, maybe one or two car lengths away from each other, lights on, just going at five miles an hour. And I tell them the whole story about my first close encounter. And the moment, I, the, the second I it, finished telling the story, the last word I utter coming out of my mouth, the, the German kid or whatever he was, the, the young worker, um, 20-something, sitting in the passenger seat, he, he laughs at me. He doesn't believe my story. So I'm in my mind, I say, God, I wish you would show them uh, – what I saw and within a second or two, you know, no more than three seconds after me saying that inside my head, inside my head, a craft that looked exactly like the first craft was in front of us. I didn't see it appear, but it was just sitting there. It was way out in front of the car. And, uh, we were going on around a left curving causeway road at the time. There's water on both sides and a lot of alligators and crocodiles in that water and uh, we slowly went, moved towards this craft it's spinning just like the first craft really slow it's a disc a black uh it's basically a black hole with eight equidistant lights around the edge and it looked exactly like the first craft and the only difference between the two was the second one wasn't vibrating the first one was and spinning about the same speed from right to left and um, anyway, the German kid said, maybe that's what he saw. And then the, and the father said, yeah, uh, maybe that's what he saw. And then I looked at the kids, the, two, the young girl and boy sitting to my left, and they had been looking around at everything. And the moment the craft appeared, um, they were frozen like they'd been shot by Mr. Freeze. On Batman, they weren't moving a muscle or not an eyeballs, not nothing. They were absolutely totally frozen. And I looked in the, at the kid in the back, the young kid, he's like uh, four-ish, and uh, he was frozen too. And the, the driver and the passenger, the adults in the front seat were not frozen. They, But they, from that moment forward, after them mentioning, you know, maybe that's what he saw, and yeah, maybe that's what he saw – after they said that, from that moment forward, they stopped caring about the craft. They didn't look up at it. They didn't stare at it. They didn't. It's like it was no longer there to the, for them, or they no longer cared about it. And um, when I was in Peru and there was a, we had an, an encounter there with another craft. Um, there was a girl in a crowd that I was with. Uh, not a girl, a lady young lady and uh she all the people that i was with there was only three of us standing there and we all looked at this thing and uh and we told her there's a craft up there come look at it and she didn't care she never got up off her seat never once thought about it might be you know something worth looking at she just didn't care and this this is the same way these two adults were in the car they didn't they no longer had any interest in this thing didn't care it was there wasn't staring at it had no interest in it whatsoever it's like it's like it no longer existed for them and the kids are frozen they're not seeing any of this so as we're getting closer to this thing um and we go under it and it's sitting directly above the causeway road which is 
about uh, maybe 30 to 50 feet off the ground. I could if I'd have gotten out with a rock, I could have hit it with a rock, thrown it, and that's how low it was. And it was directly over the causeway road. And I stuck my head, the windows are all rolled up. I stuck the top of my head against the out, it, the windows were curving out, curve out. So when I stuck my head the, uh, against the glass, I could look up and see the edge of the craft turning while we were directly under it because the window goes out slightly beyond the edge of the station wagon. So I looked at it. Uh, for a moment while we were under it and then we passed it and kept going and they didn't know the adults didn't look back at it and all these cars drove under this thing and not a single car stopped and I have to believe they all saw it their subconscious mind registered it but they probably were just like the people in our car the adults probably were you know their mind was screwed with where they weren't really caring about it and maybe the kids minds were turned off i don't know i'm just speculating about the other cars i don't nobody none of the cars stopped mm-hmm. and we went kept going around the causeway road and i kept looking back at it um it never moved it never moved from the position it kept spinning slowly it's like the first craft and we got all the way to the end of the um to a point where the tree, trees blocked it out so why do you think that you have a telepathic connection with these UFOs? Well, first of all, I don't even know what this thing is because, you know, when I was getting interviewed by Carrie Cassidy, one of the things she said to me was, you know, there might not have been any aliens in that craft. The craft itself might have been the thing, you know, it might have been an entity, which is a living whatever, and there may not have even been something inside of it and so i a i don't know the answer to your question b uh i don't need a b i don't even know if there was any aliens in it uh, and c i don't know that i necessarily have any your 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 uh your um premise i don't know that it has any truth to it what i think is going on is that um Aliens at a certain level are beyond time. They, they're beyond our level of understanding in the sense that if they want to pick up our mindset, they can just pick it up without any effort. So when I was in the car uh, during the first event, the 19, October 3rd, 1980 event that I skipped over, I didn't tell you about, I was considering committing suicide. I was ready to leave the planet. And they knew I was ready to leave the planet. And I don't know that that was necessarily to have a connection to them. It was more like they were just reading my mind Mm -hmm. and why they chose me to read my mind over 7 billion other people. I I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I do know that I went out looking for them, asking them, come take me away for like a year or two before that event. I never expected them to actually show up. And, um, when I stepped out of the car and looked up at the uh, the craft on the, the first event on October 3rd, 1980, I looked at it, and the very first thing that entered my mind was that it's not real. I'm hallucinating. I, I assumed I was hallucinating. And so I, I thought, well, if I look away and do some other things and then turn back after a while, it'll be gone because it's just a hallucination. So I turned around locked my door, rolled up the window, got into my car, brown Pontiac Le Mans, inched over on my knees to the other side, rolled up the window, locked that door, inched back out on my knees, looked at the digital clock, 11 11 o'clock exactly, October 3rd, 1980. Got out of the car, backed up, shut the door, turned around, and the thing is still sitting there. So I knew it was an hallucination, so... I'm kind of going about this backwards. Went for the second event first, and now we're back to the first, which is fine. It's okay. But, uh, you know, um, maybe they have a connection to me because I spent a year asking them to come down and take me away when I I didn't think they ever would. And um, I ended up writing a letter uh, 
the day after the first event, I called Ellington Air Force Base and told them, I said, have, did you guys see anything last night? And uh, they said, no, what? You know, it was a strange phone call. Uh, the guy set the phone down and then went and checked with somebody and came back. And I, I said, did you see anything? And he said, we're not allowed to talk about this at, at this time. Mm-hmm. And it was the strangest thing for the guy to say. I assumed he was going to say, no, we haven't seen anything. What did you see? And uh, he said, no, we're not allowed. And he repeated himself. No, we're not allowed to talk about this at this time, the subject and or this event or whatever. And uh, I said, you didn't see anything, did you? I didn't believe. I thought he was like, put me on. But if he was put me on, he was doing it very well. He was a very good actor. But anyway, um, I can't really answer your question, but I know that uh, um, I'm, a, I'm a strange character. I've been a strange character all my life. When, when I was a young kid, I was uh, when everybody around me was using cu- crayons to, to to not draw inside the lines. I was drawing perspective drawings at that age, you know, in first grade or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a little more advanced than, the pe- than most humans at that when I was. Uh, 61 years ago, minus six, 54, 55 years ago. Anyway. All right. Well, let's move on to this one. In your book, you talk about your strange encounter with the famous movie star Chuck Norris just before making the movie Sidekicks. Can you tell us about that? Okay. So my teacher is his best friend or was his best friend. I don't know if my instructor is still alive. His name is Ed Young. Anyway, um, he, tra- he trained Ed privately one-on-one for six and a half years. Ed trained me privately one-on-one for a year and a half and then publicly for two extra years, for three and a half years, until Chuck, his brother Aaron, and Ed tested me for my black belt in uh, 81. And uh, then uh, later on, I got into stunts and movie stuff, and, and I have a connect. I had a connection who got me into the movies and his girlfriend called me and uh, told me that, that uh, sidekick productions was in the holiday Inn in Houston that they'd, they'd come to town. And so it was just a heads up because she knew I had a connection with Chuck through my instructor. And so, um, so I showed up at the hotel with my, portfolio of all these photos of that I'd taken of the Houston Stuntman's Association that I was a member of at the time and uh, some st- uh, pictures of me f- doing various things and uh, I walked up to the to the counter to check-in counter and I uh, sat my portfolio up on the counter and I said I heard that Sidekick Productions was in town are they here and the guy goes who told you that you know he wanted me to he wanted me to divulge who my uh who the rat was that that let out the information and i wasn't gonna i said said to the guy i'm not gonna tell you who told me uh they were here just tell me if they're here or not and the guy wasn't gonna divulge the information whether they were there or not and so i was like what do i do next so I just turned around and, and leaned my back, kept my back leaning against the check-in counter with my portfolio sitting on the counter and just looked away from the counter. And and all of a sudden to the left, the, the uh, elevator door opened and this big burly guy, I think it was blonde uh, with no shirt on, he was sweating profusely. And he walked, this huge guy, and looked like a, almost like a wrestler. He wasn't obese like a wrestler, but he was, he was big. And he had no shirt on. He walked out and walked past me. They just sat a, a buffet out fresh to my right. And he walked past me to go over and look at the buffet. And behind him, uh, out walked Chuck, out walked, Chuck Norris walked out of the elevator. And he went walking past me fairly close to go check out the buffet, just like his, that, that must have been his sparring partner. 
and they walked out first and I'd never seen the guy before. And so as he gets fairly close to me, I said, Hey Chuck, uh, how's Ed doing? And he looked over at me and he says, Ed who? Like, who the hell are you? <laughs> like, who the hell are you? Uh, you know, uh, Ed who? And I said, Ed Young, you know, it's his best friend, right? And so uh, he said, oh, he's fine. Yeah, and he said, hold on just a second. And he walks over and checks out the buffet. And he walks back up to me. And uh, we continue the conversation. And as he's standing there, I don't remember what we said after that exactly, but um, he, to me, it looked like he was putting up his uh, hand to hit me. He just put his hand up like this, like he was going to punch me. But, you know, if he was really going to punch me, he wouldn't do that. You know, that's not a, you don't telegraph your moves. With Martial artists never telegraph their moves. But that's what I was seeing. And, and then after I saw him, do that about a second or two later the image disappeared and it, he was back to normal but while i was seeing him uh with his hand fist up it looked like it was a reality i couldn't tell it was a vision or that it was false or anything it looked totally real to me but i knew because my instructor's a very nice excuse me upstanding person that he my instructor wouldn't go off and just hit somebody for no reason and because they're best friends, I knew by logic that Chuck wouldn't do that either. So I just ignored what I was seeing, and then it disappeared, and he was he was just standing there. So that's basically the whole encounter. So, so did you have a long career in the stuntman business? Uh, yeah, well, over a decade, I was like somewhere between 10 and 15 years, and uh, I don't remember. The, the very first movie I was on was a movie called Black and White, and there was a a real ninja in that movie, not a fake ninja. And I played a ninja in another movie along with a bunch of other people. You couldn't see my face. That was uh, beneath the hidden jungle, I think. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah, I was in quite a few movies and a few, quite a few commercials. I, uh, stunt coordinated my own picture. Uh, I was the stunt coordinator, stunt coordinator, the photographer, assistant to the production manager, assistant to the producer, assistant to the art director, uh, assistant to the camera, the the cameraman, the photographer. What else did I do? Oh, just a regular PA. Hmm. I did all that on one one picture. Hmm. (laughs) That's great. Hey, you got to do almost everything. Everything but be the director. Well, odd thing was the director had so much power that he conned the producer into letting him uh, be the run a stunt and they were so far away from me that I you know I was thinking about this I'm the stunt coordinator right and he's running this stunt had it been a big budget picture I would have just gone over there and said hey uh, stop what you're doing I'm the stunt coordinator I'm doing this you're not doing this because he, he's kind of screwed it up too. But uh, anyway, I just let it go. And the guy who drove the bus was an actor. And he drove the bus through this gate, busted through the gate. And he when he did it, the power brake was on the whole time. So you can imagine driving a bus with the parking brake on hmm. applied. Wow. The bus will move, but it'll keep stopping. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, nobody nobody taught the actor how to drive a bus. And I think the first thing I would have done was ask the actor, do you know how to drive a bus? Yeah, <laughs> you would think so. So in your book, you talk about how a spirit helped you end your addiction to marijuana. Can you tell us about that? I started smoking pot at the age of 16 when I was in high school. And I stopped 18 years later at the age of 34, I was la- I was laying on my bed in my apartment, and it was daylight, and all the shades were closed, but there was sun outside, and so there was plenty of light inside, even though I had no lights turned on in the uh, apartment, and I um, 
had a spirit come upon me. It covered my body, and um, I could feel it covering my body, and I had a pain in my throat, and um, and I knew that this some intuitively I knew this was a positive spirit, and intuitively I picked up that the reason why it was giving me this pain in my throat was because it was telling me how I was screwing, screwing up my body by smoking pot. And in my head, all I'd heard, it was like I was talking to myself. I didn't hear an actually another uh, strange voice or anything. It was just like I, just like I spoke to myself in my head. It said through my own thought patterns, it said, my first commandment to you is to stop smoking. And that's it. That's the whole event. It went away. And uh, from that moment on, I never uh, took another hit from that moment till today. So. That's the whole event. I mean, after you heard it, were you in fear? Is that what made you stop, or what was no, the, no, no, the not, thing not that at made all. you stop? No, actually, I had wanted to stop, and you know, you run out of pot, and you, you know, you like you don't have any money, right? Mm. And you run out, and you can't go get any more because you don't have any money, and you're not going to like borrow money or something to get more. You're just out for a while, and um, pots. Uh, causes the pressure in your brain to change it decreases the pressure in your brain and then when it wears off your brain goes back to normal but it actually has a higher pressure than it started with and it causes you to have headaches and it will it screws with you in many ways as i've mentioned before with me and my attaching spirits and uh there was no fear i'd wanted to stop i just didn't uh i just couldn't you know, it has this pot has a psychological addiction. There's no physical addiction, but it has a very strong psychological addiction. So I was just psychologically addicted to it. But um, my craving for it stopped, uh, diminished almost completely in a, two or three weeks, and it was totally gone uh, a while after that. But I don't remember the exact time frame. But uh, no, I didn't. I had no fear of that spirit. Usually I'm not afraid of spirits. I've uh, dealt with demons and other spirits. and You know, sometimes you can get fear, but uh, usually I'm not afraid. Can you tell us about some of your cases being a hypnotherapist? Like, were some of your clients abducted by aliens or anything like that? Okay, so I had one client that was used as a breeder for the greys. She... um, had gone to another famous hypnotist before me. Uh, through him, she found out about her 24 of her encounters. Through me, she found out about 72 of her encounters. She was used as a breeder. She had 24 implantations, 24 checkups, and 24 removals for a total of 72 encounters when I knew her. And she was still being abducted when I knew her. But um, the basically that group of grays that one gray race it they have you have the breeders um uh, have the the um they take a egg out of the woman and they mix it with the sperm of a of uh either a human or an alien put it back in them and they fly around and do that to other people with the per person staying in the craft until they figure out that the the cells have attached to the wall, the uterine wall. And uh, so they know it's going to work. And then they put the person back. And then 10 weeks later or five weeks later, they check, go and check up on it without abducting the person. And then five more weeks later, they remove it. And so, um, she was used for to breed 55 aliens or grays, and um, she, one thing she said about them that was stood out was she said they looked at us like cat like we were cattle, and uh, um, yeah, that's that's one of the people I worked with. That's the most the only abductee I've I've regressed and. Um, did they happen to say why they're breeding with humans? She said they were they were breeding with us because they were basically 
dying off, that they had reached the end of that, that they had bred out all of their emotions and they had no more emotions to speak of and that um, they wanted the emotions back. The things they want from us, one of the things they want is emotions and uh, they don't want to freak out like we do when we get abducted, but they want, they want to be able to control the emotions, but they want, that's part of what they want is get the emotions back. I think when they, they, they had some kind of war and they, um, they stopped being warlike by breeding out their emotions and they just went too far with it to where without the emotions, there's no desire and without desire, there's no sex. And so they were at the point where they're just cloning each other and they're not able to reproduce. And so they want that those genetics, A, to be able to reproduce, B, to get emotions. And uh, plus a lot of other traits we have that they like, like um, they like to abduct people that are, have high side talent. That's uh, one thing she said about herself. The reason why she was abducted was because she had a very high psi talent, psychic. She uh, said that she could uh, see through walls and see through people and and uh, astral travel. She could astral travel before she even was born. When she was in the womb, she was out. This one lady who was the, the breeder, she said she was hovering astrally above her parents' bed they're sitting there sleeping and she's like three or four or five, six feet above their bed while her, she's in the womb physically, but her spirit is astral traveling above them, above her parents. Now, when she was on the craft, uh, she would get out of her head and astral travel or OBE around the craft and she would watch them do what they did and she learned all kinds of things about them and that's all in my book but um, yeah she said that they are uh, they're like sharks and they have no uh, nerves nerve end- they have no nerve endings so if you cut one of them they'll just bleed to death because they'll, they won't know they got cut because they won't feel it because mm-hmm. they have no nerve endings and um I think that's another one of the things they want from us. It's all genetics. What the traits they want from us are a whole bunch of different traits. So that's why that's they want to. They're trying to improve their race and get probably get to a point where they can breed again. I'm guessing. So. In your book, you talk about interlife experiences. How did you learn about it, and can you tell us what you know? Okay, so Michael Newton, you probably maybe read one or two of his books. You, you remember who Michael Newton is? I know of him. I haven't read his books. Okay, so I read his book, or one of his books, and uh, he he wasn't the first author to get into interlife experiences, but he did like 10,000 clients, and his big mistake was he didn't believe in attaching spirits, but, but I confirmed a lot of his stuff. Um, my clients had similar experiences to the, ones he had uh, that, that his clients had and uh, you know the, you don't hear about many of these experiences when you listen to the near-death experiences you know people are uh, going directly hitting the light almost immediately and that sort of thing you don't hear about the tunnel too much and you know I had some clients go through the tunnel and I had clients then the afterlife experience I took a lot of people through the afterlife experience and I would first I start doing past life stuff and then I start getting into future life stuff taking people to their future lives and then I start getting into inner life stuff and then I would just uh, at some point I got to where I would take people through uh, I would take them as far back as I could get to the like let's say I would take them to the last day of their life they had before this one and then take them through that death experience and then through the whole inner life experience up to this one life. And then I would just go to the one life, the inner life before that and the one before that and so forth and so on. And then I would take them forward and go through the inner life experiences going forward. And um, so the other 
side is uh, your experience on the other side is totally unique to you. And um, I had a number of clients who were still on the earth and they would run into a, uh, a being of light that was also a portal. And the uh, being of light was not like a static light being. It was more like a portal that's also a being. And it's like a shape, an odd shape, you know, like a vortex or whatever. But it's a being and a portal. And it's, um, they're, you know, take them through like um, their life experiences and stuff and make a decision on whether they're going to go on to the other side or go through another incarnation. And I had, from that experience, I had some clients that would go, you know, the decision would be made during that encounter and they would go uh, like into the light and the light would get, you know, it would be to where they're, uh, they're, they were totally in the light. I mean, as in like all white and nothing else. And then the, the light would dim back down. This is one client. Uh, this one client did this and then asked him where he was after the light dimmed back down. He was in a, in a, uh, emergency room being born in another lot and another body. So he went straight from the afterlife on this planet without going to the, really to the, what we think of as the afterlife straight into another incarnation through that, through that experience. And I had a number of clients who went straight from one life to the next without leaving the planet. And, uh, you know, I had one client who, um, he just walked around on the earth plane like a ghost and he would like go up to women and try to, to interact with them, you know, cause he still has the desires of a person in a body. Right. And he would have these interactions with them and try to get them interested in him. And they couldn't, see him he couldn't interact with him because he wasn't physical and he wasn't visible to them and so he, he did that for like like a month or two or six months or whatever and then at some point he went to the house where he was living in hung out there and at some point he's walking around out on the street and he got bored and and just saw a, a white light up in the sky like a like above the earth it was like a doorway of light and it was it wasn't a circle, it was a square and it was like, had lights around it, like looked like physical lights. And, uh, and he went into that light and went on to wherever, I don't remember where he went to, but, uh, he just got bored with hanging out on the earth and just decided to go on at some point. So I guess that's how ghosts are. You know, I've had quite a few encounters with ghosts and we can get into those if you'd like. So that's, that's my, some of my, clients experiences if uh i can go through a client who had a uh, helped him remove an attaching spirit that's i tried that with about six clients and only worked with one of them and that's another story i can get into if you want but, yeah i was going to ask you you mentioned attaching spirits when you were speaking about michael newton can you tell us about that well he, he didn't believe in him so uh, that was his mistake, and uh, I have two attaching spirits of my own. They're both demonic, but uh, I've had uh, one person see the one on my head, one person see the one on my back, and um, the thing about attaching spirits that people want to know is that I'll give you a really quick uh, thing, and that is if a person, let's say they have a, a sharp uh, pain in the back, you know, if you have a slip disc, a tor uh, torn ligament, uh, messed up muscle, compressed spine, you have any kind of problem with your back that's a normal back pain, it doesn't move around. It stays in one spot. But if you have a sharp back pain and it moves around on your back, that's an attaching spirit. Mm -hmm. If you have a headache that is um, localized, it's not as spread out like a normal headache, and you can put your hand on that spot and the the headache goes away. You take your hand off, the headache comes back. You put your hand on again, it goes away. You take your hand off, it comes back. That's an attaching spirit because it's the spirit is external to your body. It's attached to you, and it's you're experiencing it on the the uh, 
surface of your skin and uh, so your hand is blocking it it's externally caused headache a normal headache is not externally caused so you said that you have two of them so are you saying you can't unattach them uh yeah pretty much that's i've had uh i've um tried different things i haven't gone to a catholic exorcist and there's some things i have not done but uh i have not had it have not successfully removed them since you have regressed people into the interbetween of lives can you tell us about people's age after they die and where do bad people go and stuff like that well people tend to go back to a an age which is com- comfortable for them and um you know kids die and um uh, you know, I heard a guy say that I'll go to the age of 30 and a lot, a lot of people die long before the age of 30. Uh, you can stay the age you are, you can get younger. There's no rule about it. It, it happens different for different people. If you're older, you're going to go, you're going to be younger and healthy and all that. But if you're already young, if you die as a kid, you're not going to necessarily go to a younger age. I had one client who was, who was, strangled to death at the age of six or eight and as a little boy or a little girl. And and then she was like three different, she died in three different uh, incarnations. And then those three incarnations on the other side got together and merged back into one spirit, which is really odd because, you know, you're, if you're having multiple incarnations, you're a different, you know, in one incarnation, you could be an amoeba. I had a client who was an amoeba, or no, I had a client who had a client who was an amoeba. But I had a client who was a hawk in uh, a, one incarnation. But uh, what happens to you after you're in between is very unique experience. That's that's totally unique to the individual. It's, there's no rule about this happens or that happens. It's You really are creating your own world like lady I was just talking about um, in one of those interlife experiences as a little boy she was as a little boy he was crying because he had just died and he was very sad but then he was told he could go fishing and so he went fishing and when he went fishing he was in a world that was physical it was just he could feel the grass underneath his feet and he was still a little boy and he was you know, he went fishing. It was just as real as this world. He was creating his own world. And on the other side, you can literally create your own world. And because you are a creator and that power is quite, you know, you you have a lot of power over here that you don't know you have too. But, uh, but on that side, you have total ability to create your own world and you can go exist in that world and stay there for as long as you want. And you can leave that world, go somewhere else, and that world will persist even after you leave it. That's one of the things uh, that uh, Robert Monroe mentions in one of, in his last book, um, The Ultimate Journey, I think so the name of it, that you, know, you can create your world over there and then leave it, and somebody else will come along and find that world after you've created it, and you're not even there anymore. It's totally persistent reality. So your afterlife is, is very unique for each individual. Can you tell us about what your definition of consciousness is? Uh, well, you are conscious. Everything is consciousness, and you are, your soul is uh, everything. I think everything gets created out of consciousness. Consciousness is the base of all reality, and um, you are you are consciousness. In your while you're in your body, okay, I'll give you some lessons. While you're in your body, if you and this is consciousness, um, if you focus on some part of your body, let's say you focus on your hands, your hands will start tingling. Okay, if you focus on some other part of your body, it will start tingling because your focus, your consciousness, is focused on that spot. That's where your energy is at, your chi, your subtle energy, your consciousness. All that is one. You're you're all of that. And conscious is, consciousness is just another term for everything. And um, 
it's like saying God or all that is. It's all one thing. And um, um, okay, so have you ever heard of uh, what's called the music of the spheres? I have not. Okay. You know who uh, Ingo Swan was, right? Right. Okay. So Ingo Swan and D. Scott Rojo went astrally outside of their body to visit the planet Mercury and uh, other planets before our probes got there and described the planets. And then when our probes got there, they confirmed that they actually had a proper um, – had actually described the planet correctly. So that's consciousness and you moving away from your body. That's a not normal remote viewing, which I've done, but that's um, just astral traveling or not out of body, whatever. But that's you as a, as a being moving there. So consciousness, when you die, you're a, um, you're a ball uh, of energy. And when people take photos and they see orbs, that those are spirits. They're not reflections. And some there can be they can be reflections. I went I had a went on a ghost hunt uh, at Skykomish, Washington. It's a ghost town in the state of Washington. It's hard to find on a, a map, but it's uh, near Snohomish. But Skykomish, it's a ghost town. It's dark. Um, if there's no moon out and the stars are not out. You're going to be walking into a ditch, walking around the town, right in the middle of the street. You can be walking into a ditch because it's dark. I mean, really dark at night. Uh, and so I went on this ghost hunt, and um, I'm standing behind this girl that just this ghost and UFO investigator who had the uh, just bought a Sony Zero Lux camera, and. Um, and the 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 Xerox uh, night vision uh, ultraviolet or infrared I'm not sure which they are uh, cameras can see ghosts live, and this uh, orb comes flying over my head. Out at that time I wasn't that psychic, so I didn't see the orbs. These lady I was with a whole bunch of ladies. They were psychic enough to see all these orbs flying around. Those those are ghosts, which is consciousness which is your being after you've gotten out of your body if you stay on the airplane and um and the orb uh, or ghost comes down in front of the camera and as soon as it got in front of the camera i could see it through the lens through the view view thing of the camera that was you know flipped out and i could see it live being recorded and then it started flying in a figure eight formation which bugs don't do and like an infinity sign and that's that ghost slash orb slash uh, being slash it's consciousness it's who you are and what you are and and you can expand your consciousness too to where you're like like uh like you have uh god conscious christ consciousness super conscious there's so different words for it uh the lady um uh what was her name Kubler-Ross, I think, was one of the uh, hospice lady was given a speech, and she mentioned that she had spent her whole life um, listening to people talk about their their life as they're dying in a hospice, and she was she never did any type of meditation, formal meditation, but she was focusing on listening to their stories her whole life, and all of a sudden one day she had. Uh, a, her consciousness expanded to where she could, she was like totally having one of those God Christ consciousness, uh, expanded awareness things where she could, uh, she knew everything and uh, like a near deather, like somebody's gone to the other side, but she was still on this side and she had never done any formal meditation. But the, after her speech was over, these monks walked up to her and said, the reason why you had that was because you're listening to these people, uh, near-death experiences, and you're focusing. Uh, meditation, all it is is a form of focus. The more you focus, your your chi 
comes through you. It, it, the more the deeper you get into meditation, the more your energy, the chi energy flows through you. It's subtle energy, and that. Um, so, I was started this. What I was saying with talking about um, uh, D. Scott Rojo and and uh, and um, what's his name? Uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Ingo Swan. Yeah. Okay. They D. Scott Rojo wrote a book called Music of the Spheres. Now, um, one day I was sitting on my couch and the music of the spheres came on inside of me. If you read that book, the only thing he says in the book is before you die or before you're getting out of your body under very rare circumstances, you'll hear what's called music of the spheres. The book is called NAD music of the colon space music of the spheres. And that's about all he says in the book. That's really stuck in my head. But I was sitting on a couch one day and my, Barbara Brennan wrote a book called um, called uh, Hands of Light, and she was a NASA physicist. In that book, she mentions the chakras, which are um, um, like hourglasses turned sideways, and they feed into a pole that's your center. That center pole that goes up through your body, it goes down into infinity and up through your the middle of your head into infinity. It's a pole that's it's part of who you are, or it is who you are, and um, and when that came on inside of me, that that part of me, um, I could hear the music of the spheres, what what D. Scott Rowe was talking about, and it came on very low, and I thought, what is that noise? And I thought it was coming from outside, and then it got so loud, it was really loud into my head, and my ears started vibrating and i realized at that moment that it was coming and i could feel the energy on the top of my head i I knew at that moment that that was me i was making that sound okay that's the music is fierce that's consciousness that's who you are and um i'm sort of getting in all that who you are which is various different levels of consciousness so um if you stick your thumbs in your ears you're going to, and you press just the right amount of pressure, which is not very much, just a tiny amount. You're going to hear a very faint sound and you, you want to, you have a hard time hearing it when you first hear it. But if the longer you hold your thumbs in your ears, the louder it will get. And, and the way, when I do it today, if I stick my thumbs in my ears, uh, this sound, my inner sound coming from me, uh, it will get so loud almost instantly or pretty much instantly that it's like booming and um, each plane of existence is attuned to a different sound. And if you ask everybody you meet, stick your thumbs in your ears and tell me what you hear. And they'll do that. And pretty much everybody, I've never heard anybody say, I don't hear anything, but they'll all say something different. And that's because every person's, uh, being is uh, tuned to a different pl- uh, plane of existence, which all are, have different sounds associated with them. And you can learn about all that if you there's a there's an image, a picture that used to be on the Ekenkar website that they removed, but you can still see it if you go to my website and find the link, or you can go to YouTube or not YouTube, go just go to Google and put in um, put in the worlds of Eck and um, and instead of clicking on one of the links below the the search that you just made, the worlds of Eck, click on images and then look at the images and you'll see the chart I'm talking about. In that chart, if you look at that chart, on the outside the edges of that chart, it, it, it's a chart of each of the planes of existence, physical plane, astral plane, causal plane, mental plane, etheric plane, all these different planes. And then above that, the planes of non-duality, and those are the planes of duality. And so each of those planes has a different sound that's written on the outside of the, the chart. And so you can learn about the how each person, their consciousness or their being, is tuned to a different plane of existence. Now you're also, as a 
being and as a, a part of consciousness, uh, you're uh, tuned to a particular um, a particular uh, I could call it a plane, but that's not the proper term. Uh, timeline is not proper either, but timeline is closer than plane. When I did the ayahuasca, I went into Peru um, after being in a war zone. I had to go. I wanted a tax break, so I went back overseas. I had to be out of the country for a certain number of days. And I did the ayahuasca, and it opened me up as a psychic to where I was a super psychic for a couple of years, two worst years of my life. And um, and um, the what we're talking about, uh, planes of existence, I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, yeah, I was it loosened me up to where I was. I like switched from this timeline to other timelines and where things were different and it wasn't like the nazis won in this you know we won in this one and the nazis won in this one it wasn't that type of changes but there were, it was a very different world but it was the same world the same people my wife was in the other uh, uh timeline but she looked different you know, not not like a different person but just very different uh, but the same person and you know the um, I've had it where um, something is going on and you're, you'll just switch from a different timeline and that thing that you thought that was like that, all of a sudden it's not like that. You know, the, we, we hear people talking about um, what's that, there's a term they use uh, where, you know, some people remember thing, want things one way and other people remember things a different way because they're from a different timeline that are and, merging and diverging. And all that is consciousness. You know, it's, all, it's all consciousness. Everything is conscious. Speaking of timelines, the timeline of this podcast has gone really fast. I'm even over time. So okay. before we go, I want to let people know how to find you. What is your website? Profoundstates.com. No, www. Just profoundstates.com. Is that going to be the title of your book as well, Profound States? No, the title of my book is on my website, and it is uh, Instruments of Control. But the subtitle is, one second, I will tell you the subtitle. I always forget the subtitle because um, because it's very long, among other things. Um, the, whole, the whole title is... Uh, Instruments of Control, How Attaching Spirits Cause War, Terrorism, Crime, Racism, Murder, Insanity, Mental Illness, Molestation, marital, marital Discord, Suicide, and many other illnesses, and are leading humanity to, the, to its fourth impending fall. That's the title of my book. Once your book is out and it's published and people can get it. You should, we should get you back as a guest and we can talk more about it because I feel like we've only scratched the surface of it. Sounds great. I appreciate your time and ha having me on your show and I will let you know when uh, I choose to self-publish the book or find an agent, whichever comes first. After watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions or chat with you. Are you open to that? And if so, how should they do that? Uh, my email address is charles.beaver at comcast.net. All right. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Well, you create your own world. Um, you create your own world in this, this life and you create your own world in the other life. And life, the purpose of life, it's a gift you give to yourself. So that's one of the things we could have gone through on the inner life experience that I didn't choose to go through, I just didn't even think about it, is I've taken people through where they choose their incarnation. And I've met people, before I did that, I actually met a guy who remembered choosing his own incarnation before I learned it through my clients. So you, all these troubles and tribulations we go through in life, one thing you want to remember is you chose this incarnation. It's your choice. So, uh, you will make of it as you will, and uh, it will be good or not, depending on how you choose to, to focus. You know, focus your your focus is uh, 
important. Focus on the good things. Don't focus on the trees as you're going down the hill on your skis. Focus on the open space. (laughs) Mike, thank you so much for being my guest this evening. I really appreciate you and I wish you the best. Same to you. Thank you for having me on your show. And I look forward to being on it again if if and when the book gets published. All right. Have a great evening. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.